Jeannie, why don't you give us a background, a backgrounder on, on some of your experience in tobacco? Okay, well, initially I was a, a, a civil servant in the Australian government, uh, working in the Prime Minister and Cabinet international legal area, where I worked on treaties and international negotiations. I then, as a result of that, BAT at the time, um, 2000, around then, was looking for somebody to um, help them understand this new thing which was coming along called the FCTC. So I was like, oh, I don't really want to work for a tobacco company, but decided to, uh, to you know, go along for the interview anyway. And they, get, they offered me the job. And it became, in a sense, I was head of the regulatory area of BAT in London uh, for 10 years. And I, at the time, did all the advising to the BAT board and um, the company internationally of how to approach, how to understand all that sort of thing in relation to, to the developing FCTC. Because I'd actually worked as a baby civil servant on the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which as we know now is, is where it's at with its COP26 at the moment. So from there, um, I then left BAT in 2011 and went and set up JCIC International, which I did for another 10 years, working for startups and also for uh, Philip Morris. I consulted for them for quite a, a long time. Um, I assisted in setting up the framework, uh, the foundation for Smoke Free World with Derek Yak. And I then, in the end of 2020, or beginning of 2020, sorry, uh, January 2020, went to work as Vice President of International Regulation for Jewel Labs, which I did for the last 18 months, when I decided to leave um, and just go back to doing consultancy again. So I've just started um, again as JCRC International. So you've got uh, a pretty unique view. Well, the, the other thing I didn't mention is um, way back um, in 2007, really at the time before there was e-cigarettes, I did a legal dissertation on uh, emerging public health issues, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, Human Rights and Harm Reduction, because my view back then was that this issue was coming. Uh, and as the only, the, as I said, there weren't any e-cigarettes. The only product I could reference was Swedish Snus, um, and went through all of these things in the FCTC, etc. And I think that kind of gave me um, the background to that this will happen, um, and and what needed to happen. So you know, very much long-term believer in that, but never been a smoker or a or a user of it. But I really just think people should be allowed to and have. Um, opportunity to to get what they need in terms of their nicotine and you know just be able to have it in less harmful ways if that's possible. So being there during the development of, of the FCTC and now how, what do you think are they meeting their mandate? Well it's interesting because um, one of the things the next panel is going to or the panel is going to cover is um, looking at the you know the inclusivity and etc. In the in the early days, um, I, I was there. Um, I was working for a tobacco company, and I was there in the public gallery, watching things, being able to talk to people. I mean, these are government events, but you know it was it was it was inclusive. You know, Consumers International was there, so you had um, you know uh, uh, you you had inclusivity to an extent which is now completely gone. And of course, watching the, uh, the FCTC be developed over three years, you, you saw the process of negotiation, you saw all the governments coming together. Governments put harm reduction into it because they wanted to do it. Governments didn't put, for example, plain packaging in there because they argued that they didn't want to do that. It needed to be up to governments. So all, the whole thing is it's all about what governments want to do and it's a framework convention. So lots
lots of options and then governments do what is relevant to their national uh, strategy. Whereas now it's just like completely closed. No one can get in. In fact, it's only Canada, one of the only countries in the world that has stood up to enable the public gallery to be opened for the public to be able to observe and watch. But um, Is that for this year? Uh, I, I don't know what will happen this year, right. but in the past, um, Canada, I think it was certainly COP7 um, in, in India and other places, and during the, the IMBs um, for the Developing Illicit Trade Protocol, they, Canada was, you know, because it has a strong you know, the, you know uh, open, open and transparency is a big part of Canada, as it should be for Australia, New Zealand, you know, all of the, the countries where this sort of thing is, is um, upheld. Canada has spoken out, but they didn't get support from any others. And these were a few things that did go to votes and they lost. Are you familiar with some of the changes going on in Canada right now? Not, not to a great detail, but I, but I am aware that, you know, there is, you know, the, 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 the federal level is doing certain things, but the provinces um, are doing, doing other things, which seem to me um, to be a little bit draconian or backward stepping compared to um, nicotine limits and other things. I mean, if, if cigarettes deliver nicotine to a user, um, a, a smoker, at a certain level, then surely anything that a safer nicotine product delivers, which is less than a cigarette, should be okay. But, you know, there's, there's all these kind of seeking to put in limits that aren't satisfying to smokers and to, to enable them to make these switches, you do have to wonder what's actually going on there. Now, Canada federally made, you know, vaping products with nicotine legal mm. in, in 2018. And at the federal level, they just instituted a nicotine concentration restrictions, which more than half the amount of nicotine that you can get in, in devices. And I would say that we're probably weeks away, maybe, of federally them coming down with a full national flavor ban. And they announced that it's only going to be unsweetened tobacco flavors and maybe some mint. Maybe, but no, no sweet, nothing. Basically, it has to be unpleasant, otherwise it won't exist, right? And I just wonder, does that sound out of character for Canada? Well, from what I know of Canada, yes, you would argue that it's not particularly libertarian or um, liberal in terms of the, what you, you always associate with a country like Canada doing things properly um, and scientifically, you know, but that isn't. So you, you look at, and I think a lot of it is misunderstanding of things. If you look at nicotine limits, like, I don't know exactly what they've done there, but it seems to me like it's um, if they're, they're, they're restricting the nicotine in a bottle or the nicotine in a device. 20 milligrams per milliliter is what they did in Europe. Well, that's, that's what's in a bottle. That is irrelevant to what's delivered into the human as, um, as nicotine absorption. And a lot of people get, mix, get nicotine absorption and nicotine delivery. Uh, and, and, and nicotine delivery and nicotine absorption is the same. And nicotine content in a bottle. I mean, it's, it, they're almost irrelevant things. Whereas, in fact, 20 milligrams per milliliter is about, um, and I'm not a scientist, but it's, it's about a third um, to, to, to a half of what is delivered in a cigarette. So, you know, go, go figure, it's not based on science. Even um, when the European Union did this in its Tobacco Products Directive, the second um, version of it, in its recital at the beginning, it says, recital 38, something like, we believe um, e-cigarettes and nicotine content needs to be commensurate with a cigarette, therefore we make it 20 milligrams. They, they made a mistake. 
scientists um, from Dr. Fasolino, Konstantinos Fasolinos, many scientists have written to the WHO, not to the WHO, to the EU saying you got that wrong. I think there's an acknowledgement that it was got wrong because science shows that they got it wrong. Whether they, in Tobacco Products Directive 3, which they're looking at, they do change that. But the principle is there that, in, you, that, that new nicotine and novel nicotine products should deliver nicotine not around the sorts of levels or, um, you know, to enable smokers to actually switch across to something that doesn't contain smoke. Not cut them right down so that they're just not acceptable. And then if you go to flavours, it's like they're trying to make it as unpalatable as possible. And you have to wonder, to me, I just think, why, why are governments doing this? Is it tax protection? Because, you know, it's hard to tax a, a product that is less harmful more than you tax a combustible cigarette or tobacco product. So, you know, what, what's the reason that you don't want people? Because effectively, by making policy decisions like that, they are effectively stopping people transferring over from smoking to um, non-smoking or to, 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 to non-combustible products. And why? what's the reason? Is it an ideology? I don't think governments have that kind of ideology. Are they listening to those that have ideology? Um, yes, I'd say they are. But what is that ideology then, do you think? It is hard to know, but I would say in the in the early days, the the tobacco control movement that was very evident at all those early FCTC negotiations, they wanted to stop um, smoking, and that's 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 what the FCTC does. It it does that, and no one would object to that. But I think kind of when when everything, all the boxes were ticked on the FCTC, um, it entered into force, it became policy. You know, everything's happening. It was like, well. What next? I always think there's two, and I used to dissect this down, there's, there's tobacco control in two parts. There's those that are interested really in public health and really want to improve um, public health and smokers um, you know, and, and everyone. And they actually are the ones that have moved towards accepting safer nicotine and other products because their ethos is about that. Then you've got the other group which you know, is more about kill corporate, they don't like corporates, they don't, not just in tobacco but in other sort of areas of, of industries doing things, they just don't like corporations and they don't like big tobacco. So the objective is to kill big tobacco and kill anything like that. So you've got these two, they're, they're lumped together as tobacco control but they're very different in their approaches and I, you can see one by one those starting to look at the evidence on public health are moving over to, um, to, to what the science and evidence is showing but you know I think there's, there's elements there, um, people are stalwart in their thinking and that's a shame. So what do you think FTC is going to do uh, with COP9? I mean, is it possible that they're going to take things even to bigger extreme? Well, they can't do anything unless governments allow it. It's, it's the decision-making process at a COP is absence um, of a formal objection means consensus. So unless countries speak up and say, no, we don't want that, then, then it will pass. But in order for it to, to, to be put on the table 
um, at, at the beginning, it requires a government to put it there. The WHO doesn't, it, it's the secretariat and the admin and it has its own views and it can push governments to say that, governments that might have more influence over, usually uh, developing, in, um, developing countries um, it has a little bit more influence so it sort of pushes them to say things. But it, other governments need to, to, to stand up and so the UK government's like, you know, this is, we, we implement harm reduction policies in our country and um, they are working. Smoking rates are dropping. We've got less health issues. You know, we've got all of these things, evidence is showing. So we actually are not gonna go ahead with that, but it needs that political will. It needs that bureaucratic say so to be able to do that. I used to negotiate myself on things, that not on this issue, but that's what you have to do. My, my job in an Australian civil service way back then, you, there wasn't internet and things like that, but you, you would ring up other governments and you'd say, we're going to do this, what are you going to do? Are you going to support us on this? All this is going on. Um, so I expect it will be going on, uh, but science needs to prevail and, and be ultimately underpin the decisions. And if that, if that um, doesn't happen, then I think, you know, it, it doesn't augur well. And, you know, you think when with the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the whole world is focused on COP26 and everyone's together. Governments uh, have come to, you know, really look at this issue of, um, of, of um, burning fuels and, and how we need to move away from that. And, you know, all the national, nationally determined commitments that governments are going to make. COP9 should be doing the same. We're moving away from combustion to, to less combustion and to move away to safer sorts of things and new things. There's no political will. Um, and it, it's incongruous as to exactly why that is. So there's two questions that I've, I've got left and pretty big ones. The first one, you know, I don't know what the answer to this is, but like if it is up to the countries, how then, what's the impact of, say, like China or the other countries that have huge state monopolies uh, in tobacco, in combustible tobacco, are, are they having a bad influence then at the, at the FCTC level? It's, it's really, it, it's, yes, what is interesting is the state monopolies that exist around the world. And you can see the, 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 the interests um, coming out in various things. So for example, when China ratified the FCTC, it clearly put in its, um, its interpretative declaration at the time it lodged that it said, for tobacco is, is terrible, you know, blah, blah, blah. They agreed to everything and therefore we will not let any um, foreign tobacco companies be set up in China, etc. And you think, right, that's protection. Thailand did the same. It's like, oh, we agree with Article 13, um, the ban on sales and uh, on, on advertising, etc., and went into all the reasons why. But this was only for foreign imported brands. It wasn't in relation to domestic products. So, the the, the state monopolies have a lot of. Um, things going on there which I think um, do require a lot of scrutiny. I think because the countries are China, Japan, Egypt, Thailand, you know, they're, they're, no one really says very much. It's like the elephant in the room. Everybody goes on, uh, when I say everybody, I mean the, the international NGOs and all the commentaries on, you know, it's either on Philip Morris or BAT or Big Tobacco. Well, Chinese National Tobacco Company and the state uh, STMA are the biggest. They, I think there's something like 39% of the global market is, is in China. 
So how come there's no focus on that? No, it's there's some very odd politics there, and uh, I think these things deserve further scrutiny. I think, you know, you can apply that even over to some of the COVID things. I, yesterday, um, I heard um, um, Lord Ridley uh, speak at an event at the Institute of Economic Affairs, and he was, he's just about, to, he's just launched a book, or it's coming out in, in a few weeks, which is all about the, um, uh, what, what, I mean, I haven't read it, but he, he was indicating essentially China has, um, you know, what it's not saying about really what happened um, with, with COVID and, and how the origins of that virus. I think China has a lot to answer for on some of the things, and, and especially in relation to, to tobacco. And, um, you know, during the FCTC negotiations, China would say things like, well, uh, on the, um, the packaging and the advertising, well, you know, our brands, Red Pagoda and Hong Tashan, you know, they're, they're big, strong cultural sim symbols. We're not going to give them up. You do what you want. We'll sign here, but we're not going to change it. So... You mentioned um, that within the divide of tobacco control, that there's this one side, they're pretty anti-corporate, you know, that, that's part of that ideology there. And I wonder, you know, that side normally across the board We'll always discuss regulatory capture in relationship to corporations' capitalism. You know, they're capturing the regulator. But are we not witnessing a, a different kind of regulatory capture now with, say, like Bloomberg and the influence that Michael Bloomberg and all those charities have um, on the WHO? And I would imagine FCTC has to be impacted by that. Are we not at witnessing an actual regulatory capture, but it's nonprofit advocacy that's doing the capturing? Well, there's that old saying we all know, whoever um, pays the piper calls the tune. Um, and it is Bloomberg that is paying the piper. Um, in, and, and therefore those that have that um, ideology or that focus. I don't know whether Michael Bloomberg himself actually realises the extent of this or it's just sort of he gives the money and it's farmed out to others. Um, but it is, it is truly a, a dilemma. It will be a textbook case in the future that students will study on, on um, uh, public choice theory economics, really. It's like um, that whole area of, um, in the absence of um, being able to talk to people, governments have to rely on lobby groups and others to make decisions and, you know, where that comes from. And I think in this case, it is, it's, it's completely turned over. Uh, to the to the other side, and I know absolutely, hand on heart, for all, I wouldn't. I worked for the tobacco control side, my very first job after leaving university, back in the 80s, and I didn't want to work for a tobacco company. But I can say, my entire time, they have. I wouldn't work for them if I didn't believe that they were trying to sort of do things that were were correct and proper and reasonable, and they have done. I mean, I'm not working for anyone at the moment, I'm not working for any tobacco company or anyone, but I think that it's just such, like someone needs to really look into this before it becomes customary international law that this is, this is okay to exclude people from, from um, international decision making. Well, and certainly you have consumers that are excluded because they're considered to be dupes of the tobacco industry, even if they're not, right? So who actually are they listening to then? If they won't listen to industry, they won't listen to users, it's very tough. It is tough. And I think hopefully conferences like this and publications like uh, what is just being released today can at least generate some sort of better awareness of what's going on.